Hey, we're starting a new series today, and an egg just came my way. There's nothing in here. Oh. No, I can't throw it at you. I'll just put it here. Yeah, good morning again. Good morning. We're starting a new series today called Real Relationships. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a dad now, so I can make these jokes. <laughs> well, let me share with, this, with you a little story. Um, a few years ago, when I was living in Northern California, um, I used to hang out with my friend. Now, you know how, well, you guys are in college. Oh, is it finals week? Yeah. Blessings to you guys, man. I did not like finals week. Anyways, um, you know, so when you're in college, you meet a few friends, and then uh, after you graduate, one by one, they start getting married off, right? And you're wondering when your turn is, right? And I was towards the end of that group of friends, people, your friends getting married thing, okay? I was towards the end of that. So I had friends who were getting married, and I would be like, I would look at them thinking, wow, like one day, just one day, you know, like I will be like them, right? And so there was this friend who was dating his girlfriend since the beginning of college all throughout and got married a few year, like a year or two afterwards and to me they were like the perfect couple they were like they'd never fought you know she always made a big deal of his birthday you know she would you know like because i didn't know the girl that well but she would be like hey Katz, i know you're 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 close to this guy do you think you could show up for his birthday bash like a bash like you throw bashes for your you know your like He's kind of like that. She's kind of like that, right? So I'm like, this is a perfect couple because she cares about him and he cares about her. And they were living in Northern California, so I would visit them often. And um, every once in a while, we'll watch basketball games together. He was a Warriors fan. I was a Laker fan. So every time they're playing against each other, I would go over to his place in the living room and we'll just watch TV, right? And meanwhile, his wife would be, like, it's not quote, real wife would, you know, he would, <laughs> You know, they would, you know, she would be in the other room coming in and out of the room every once in a while. But one time, I remember this really clearly because this is something that would not happen to them, which is she went into the kitchen, we were watching the game, and then she would come in, stand there for a while, cross her arms, and then she'll walk out. And she did it like maybe two or three times, okay? And then on the third time she walked in, she did this and then made contact with her husband, eye contact, and, and he was like, like he knew, like, he just knew, just by looking at her, he knew, right? And so he walked out of, I'm watching the game, he walked out of the room into the kitchen where she was, and then you know that fight that happens where you don't want your guests to know you're fighting, but they're actually fighting? So it's like a, a hushed-down version of, like, an argument. It's like, you can hear the... So you don't know what they're saying, but you hear the tone of it, right? It's like... That, that's what was going on in the next room. Okay, now, it's funny now, okay, because they're, they're happily married, okay, but it wasn't funny then because I was like, my ideal relationship that I looked up to was falling apart right before my eyes, right? And, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have that couple in mind. You're like, that's the couple that I want to be like. Like, maybe you're already married and like, like honey, this is, that's, what, that's our goal. That's what we need. That's the model we're going to go after. Or maybe you're not married yet and you're like, when I get married, I want to make sure our relationship looks like them. You know, like that's, that, that was trying to crumble right before, well, not before, right before my ears, I guess, because you can hear them, but you can't see them. And that's what's going on. And so I thought, is there such a thing as a perfect couple? Or maybe not just a couple, like a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, but is there such a thing as a perfect, like, best friend where, like, what does that look like? Are we allowed to fight? Like, if you fight, is that a sign that they're not a, like, it's not a perfect relationship? Or, like, are we, are we supposed to share everything? Like, 
if I just had a good model or example that I could follow, then, then it'd be a lot easier because you just have to mimic what they're doing, right? But that's the thing is, at that point I realized, I don't think there's such thing as a perfect couple. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship. But I need to have something that's ideal so that I can mimic it so I can become more and more like that ideal version of a relationship. So I thought, well, maybe if my friends don't have that perfect relationship, well, maybe I should look somewhere else. So I thought, we're better to look than Hollywood, right? So I'm like, Brangelina, this is it, right? Yeah, we know that they're not together anymore. So okay, that didn't work out. And so like, okay, wait, what am I thinking? I'm a Christian. Let's look in the Bible. <laughs> but then it turns out there's no such thing as a perfect couple even in the Bible. Adam and Eve, well, the blame game thing was pretty bad, right? That was pretty bad. Okay, well, they did bring in sin into this world. Yeah, that was bad too. Yeah, that's not a perfect couple. They ruined the whole world. So, so, so you're looking through the Bible and you're like, there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. Until a few years ago, somebody was like talking to me about this one concept in the Bible that said, you could always look to this one thing as an example of a perfect relationship. And I thought, well, what is that? What is that? And so that's what this series is going to be. We're going to be looking at this one model of a relationship that we find in the Bible, okay? And you have to really dig deep to find these, this, this one model because it's not just blatantly just staring at you in the Bible, okay? You have to really dig deep for this. So this series is going to be a little more uh, intellectual. There will be a lot of practical things, but today you've got to put your thinking caps on, okay? So, so the question that I want to ask everybody here is this. What does a perfect relationship look like? What does a perfect relationship look like? Is there a model that we could look at and say, that is what I should base my relationship on? And we're not just talking about married couples, although this would be very good for that, okay? It's not just dating relationship or best friends. Not, we're ta- also talking about family relationships. We're talking about coworker relationships. We're talking about best friend relationships. Maybe you're a part of a life group. We're talking about that kind of relationship too. What are some things that we could instill in ourselves that will help out in our relationships? So today we're going to be looking a lot about this one thing, okay? And this one thing, I'm going to tell you right now because in case you fall asleep, I just want you to know the answer to the question so that you know you can go home and study for yourself if you miss the rest, okay? The perfect relationship that we're going to be looking at today is what we like to call, and this word is not found in the Bible, it's called the Trinity, and you guys probably heard of that, but we'll talk about more of that in a second, okay? But I want to share with you why it's not in the Bible, because there's hints of it, okay? There's, there's things that point to it, but that it's not clearly described for us. So we have to get clues out of the Bible to, to figure this thing out. So let's start from the very beginning, because this is the first mention of a trinity. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For those of you who made a New Year's resolution months ago saying, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, I know you got this far, okay? So you guys are all familiar with this, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, so in verse 1, we have a story that starts off, it doesn't start off with, like, here are the five proofs that God exists. This, that's not how they start. It just starts off with a statement saying, in the beginning, God created. The first action that's connected to God and the first identifier of God is that he is a creator, Okay, keep that in mind. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. So this creator God created a world that was, dark, uh, that was dark. Okay, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So now, in verse 2, we know that this God has another entity as a part of him, which is the Spirit of God. And then we go to verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
God speaks a word and something happens, almost as if his words have a life to itself. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, if you ever got that far in your, your I don't know if you have, but okay, John chapter 1, verse 1 starts like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, word was with God. It basically, John is basically saying that word that was spoken in the creation story actually has a name, and his name is Jesus. So in verse 1, we have a creator. Verse 2, we have a spirit. And in verse 3, we have the son, Jesus. Interesting way to start a very interesting book, right? So here's the interesting thing, okay? This three, okay, is not three separate entities. This three is actually one. And to make that clear, we move on to verse 26, when God creates humanity. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. You see, up until this point, if you didn't catch on to the little pattern in the beginning of the chapter, you would probably think there's only one God, that this one God is singular. But then all of a sudden, towards the end of that same chapter, he starts ta- using words like us and our, and you're like, well, where did that come up? It's like, well, that's basically their way of saying, you missed the hints in the beginning of the chapter. There's actually more than one involved in this story. So already we have this thing called the Trinity. Now, you guys have probably heard this term, that God is love, Right? Before the world was created, how could God be love if he was by himself? Love requires other people or other entities, right? In other words, what I want you to know today is this, that God is a relationship in himself. That God is a relationship in himself. That before the world was created, before you and I were created, God was already a satisfied, complete being because he in himself is a relationship. And you're like, what? Like, how does that make sense? sometimes it doesn't make sense sometimes it's a mystery right and it's okay right god is god and you're trying to figure this thing out and let me just tell you this okay if you have figured god out that makes you greater than god and i'm glad that we worship a god that that we that's greater than us right so god is a trinity god is one but three okay and what we just read in that verse 26 is basically this he's saying that when we were created right? When humanity was created, we are created to reflect his image. There we go. Thank you. Okay, what that means is this. When God created us, he said, I'm not just going to make you into a human being because we are a relationship. I'm going to make sure that I instill that image into you. This is why, okay, if you have like daughters or if you are a teenager or whatever, you like to talk on the phone a lot. And it's like 9 p.m., 10 p.m., okay? And then after you cut the phone because it's getting late, the next thing you do is you start texting. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And when somebody says, would you please stop texting, the next thing you do is you go on social media. Who, what is this person doing? What is that person doing? What's their relationship status? Why do we do this? It's because deep down inside in our DNA, we are social beings. We are relational beings. Why? Because we're created in the image of the first real relationship. And some of you are like, but I'm an introvert. Yes, I understand that. But maybe you relate to people in a different way. Okay, maybe not in a da-da-da talking way, right? But you feel like you need to be around other people at times. Not all the time, but, all, you know, but you need to be with people, right? So you know that first verse that said, in the beginning, God created the right? We could even look at this in a different way. Maybe you could look at it this way. In the beginning, the Trini- Trinity created the heavens and the earth. It's this idea of one but not quite one. There are actually three, and you're trying to figure out how does that work, you know, and you're like, wait, Kotz, are you just making this up? I mean, because the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. Where else in the Bible does it show up? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, 
you'll eventually get to the book called Deuteronomy. Okay, and you know how as Christians, if you say, what's the most important verse in the Bible? You say, John 3.16. You make a poster of it. You take it to a football game, right? In the Old Testament, their number one verse was not John 3.16 because the book of John wasn't written yet. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was their go-to verse. And this is how that goes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One, right there, okay? And it goes on, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. You've probably heard Jesus say this before. The word one right there is a really interesting word. Um, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew today, okay? I'm probably going to butcher it up, so I'm going to teach you the wrong Hebrew. Okay, but the word one right there is the word echad. Can you say echad? Good. You're good at the thing. Good. I was sharing this with my wife yesterday. She's like, echad? No, no, no. It's echad, okay? <laughs> okay, the word echad is a very interesting word because it doesn't mean one, like one, two, three, four, five. One, it actually better translate as unit. Like, it could be many, but it could be one. So if I were to say, well, look at the warriors. They played as if they were one. That was the word echad. That's what you, where you would use that word. So even in their theme verse, I would say theme verse, the Jewish theme verse, the word one implies that there is a unity, a unit. So, there, so, so biblical scholars in the early years, like the year 300, they got together and said, how does this work? There's like, I see distinct personalities like the Father and the Son, the Spirit. It seems like there's three of them, but they're one, and it's like three and one. It's like, a, uh, what should we call it? What should we call it? And they're like, well, it's like three, so let's try. Try, you know, like try one, two, three, try. Try unit, try unit, try unit, try unity, try, 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 tr- trinity, trinity. So they came up with the word trinity. This is where the, we came up with the word. So you're not going to find the word trinity in the Bible, but it's okay because the word Bible is not in the Bible. Okay, so it's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. But the reason why they were so obsessed with naming this thing called Trinity, the reason why they were so obsessed with it is because of the same thing that we're looking at it for through, through this whole series. Okay, is that they look to the Trinity to discover what real relationships ought to look like. You see, we're not the first people to come across this thing. People back then were looking at the Bible saying, why are there no good examples of what a perfect relationship looks like? Where do we look? And then somebody's like, but have you seen the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit? Like, it's, it's, it's mysterious, and it's not blatantly just shouting at you. You have to kind of dig through the scriptures to find it, but it's really there, and I think this is what we need to base our relationships on. So these people studied it, right? And they're like, what, you know, and, and they're not just looking for a proof. They're actually looking for the way that they're connecting, connected with each, with each other. So the better question that they asked was this. How does the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another? Because they said, if we could figure that part out, then maybe we could work this humanity thing out. Maybe, maybe this is what we need to do. So these people, these really smart people, way smarter than me, they look through the scriptures and they're reading through every single page. Like, are there any hints here about the Trinity and how they relate to each other? And as they got through, they got to Genesis chapter 18. They're like, wait a minute. There's something here, I think, that points to the Trinity. So I want to share that with you. This is, this is where we're going to rest today. And, and every week we'll look at different parts of the Bible for the Trinity. But today this is where we're going to look. Genesis chapter 18. There's a character named Abraham. And Abraham is... He's, you know, God called him out of his own hometown called Ur, U-R, Ur, and he's, he's like, I want you to go, and uh, you're going to be a nomad for a while. You're going to pitch tents, and you're going to sleep in them at night, and you look at the stars to be reminded of God's promise for you. You're going to be walking through the desert for a long time, so he's doing that, and eventually, he gets to this one location, 
and we're going to pick up the story from there. Okay, this is how it starts. The Lord, now the word Lord there is the word Yahweh. So this is God, okay? The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So you could just imagine. He wakes up in the morning. It's like, boy, it's hot. He opens his tent. He looks outside and he sees Yahweh. He sees God. Now, let's stop the story here. Now, everybody close your eyes. You just woke up in the morning. It's really hot. You open your tent door and you see God. Now, in your mind, you don't have to say this out loud. What does that look like? What does God look like to you? Okay, now you open your eyes. I want to see if what Abraham describes as what he sees looks exactly like what you just imagined because we see Yahweh. We see God, okay? He opens his tent, and this is what he sees. Abraham looked up and saw three men. Did you guys imagine that? Okay, one person did. Okay. <laughs> three men standing nearby. Now, more current people today, like American Christian, Christianity, always say, well, it's, it's God and two angels, but there's no mention of that in the Bible, okay? So... Um, Let's take the word for what it actually says. Okay, so Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, plural, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Why does he do that? Because he knows who these guys are. He's like, this is God. This is, oh my goodness, this is God. I, 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 I'm not worthy. And so he gets on his knees and he bows to the ground. And, he, and the word ground means like at, at, at the floor, at the very, very bottom, because the lower you put your head to the ground, the more you're showing reverence to whoever's in front of you. So this is like the ultimate sense of reverence. As a matter of fact, the word worship in the Hebrew implies this imagery right here, is to put yourself on the ground, okay? So that's what's happening here. Let's go on with the story. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. It's like, I know you're just passing through, but please stop here. Hang out with me for a while. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Washing feet is a sign of service to the person, right? And it's, it's basically showing reverence to whoever it is that you're washing. Um, let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Like, I want to make sure you have the perfect customer service experience now that you are here. All right, more instructions. Very well, they they said, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. It's like, Sarah, wake up. Look what's going on here. Quick, he said, get three seahs of finest flour and knead it and make some bread. So like, carbs, we need carbs. Let's get some carbs. Next verse. Okay, then he ran uh, to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant and hurried to prepare it. It's like, servants, we need some beef. Go hurry up and get that. Okay, he then brought some curds and milk, uh, and milk and the calf that, he had been, that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. I mean, my wife pointed out that this is the ingredients for a cheeseburger. I'm like, oh, cool, they had cheeseburgers. But um, <laughs> I'm like, I didn't see it that way, but okay. Um, okay, but, but, but what's going on here is this. They're under a tree, under the shade, and they have water to wash their feet. And, and he just served them the greatest meal that you could prepare. And if you've ever been camping, this is a huge deal that you could even do this, right? Abraham is standing off to the side. He's watching them from afar, but he doesn't feel like he's worthy enough to join the party. Now, we look at them and say, wow, look at Abraham. Look how, how, how reverent he is again towards, towards these characters. This is like, that's how we need to be. Now, you'll be surprised that this isn't the point of the story. Now, 
Um, from the time that they created this idea, they, they not created, but they, they put a label to this idea of a trinity, okay? They've been studying this so much that they're like, there has to be more to this than what we could find in the scriptures. And so there's this new side of Christianity that started to form. Now, I'm going to go through just a little bit of church history, so bear with me, okay? So there's a group of people who are like, we just have to look at the Bible and Bible only, and that's all we're, we're going to look at today, Right? But then there's a group of people over here who are saying, but I've had these experiences. I can't explain it. I can't find it in the Bible, but, but when I sit down and meditate about the Holy Spirit and when I think about the Father and the Son, like something changes inside of me and I can't find anything in the Bible that talks about that. And so there's another side of Christianity that started to form called mysticism, Christian mysticism, okay? And what people discover is that when you put the two together, you have this fullness of understanding of who God is. Right? So today in Protestantism, especially in America, it's like you read the Bible and that's it. Right? But back then they had this thing, they're like, we're going to paint, draw, we're gonna paint pictures of what we think the Holy Spirit looks like. And we're going to paint pictures of what we think the Father and the Son look like together. And they would stare at these paintings to see like, if, they're, if they get inspired. And that was called mysticism, because okay, that's not in the Bible. Right? And so, uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of the, the old paintings. Now this painting was painted in the 1400s by a guy named Andrei Mu- uh, Rublev. I think I'm seeing it, Rublev, Russian dude. Okay, 1400s. This is before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Okay, this is before the Protestant Reformation. This is a long time ago. Okay, so there's no church politics in the way that we understand it today. So I want to show you this painting. This is called the Trinity. Okay. Now this is, a, uh, this is depicting the very same story that we just read right now. And it's depicting these three characters sitting around a table having a meal or right before the meal, after finishing the meal, because there's no food on the table, okay? But, um, and if you look at it carefully, so this is, I'm going to introduce you to a little bit of Christian mysticism, okay? Now, don't worry, I'm not going to take you too far into it, okay? So if you stare at this painting, let's just, this is at the museum in Russia somewhere, Moscow, I think. If you just stare at this for a long time, people got inspired. There's, pe- there's stories about people who actually came to know Jesus and said, I want to be a follower of Jesus because of this painting. They just stared at it, and they're like, I think I get it now. They, they just look at it, they stare at it, and they start to see more and more of what God is like, the Trinity is like. So art historians study this, and they, this is what they discovered. They think the character on your left is the father. Why? Because he has a gold robe on. Not only that, the gold robe is a little translucent, so you can see the blue that he's wearing underneath. By the way, blue represents the heavens. Okay, so he's, he's, he's powerful, he has gold, and he's, it's, translucent, it's almost invisible, Right? So they're like, that must be the Father. In the middle, we have Jesus. That's the Son. You can see because he has a golden sash, and with that over his shoulder, what that represents that he is the king. Okay? But also, you see he's wearing brown and blue. Brown represents earth. Blue represents the heavens. And every time you see an image or an icon of Jesus, he's holding two fingers. This isn't because he's, being, he's taking pictures with a bunch of Japanese people. Right? He's not doing this, Okay? But the reason he's doing two, it's not, he's like, peace, dude. No, he's not doing that either. The reason is because the two fingers usually represent, in ancient art, that God is holding two worlds together, heaven and earth together. And he's also spirit and flesh put together, two fingers put together. And so art historians are like, that must be Jesus in the middle. Not just that, but you can see the tree over his shoulder. That represents also that one day he's going to be crucified on a tree, on a piece of wood. And he's also the one that's reaching for the cup of wine, um, which, if you know the Gospels, you know the story of Jesus. He does that. Okay. And finally, the character on the right, um, you can't tell because our projector is kind of whack, but the, the, um, 
He's wearing blue, but what he's wearing over that is actually green. It's, that's supposed to be green. Okay, and green represents growth in life. And so that's like, oh, the spirit is the one that helps us grow, and it's the one that gives us life. And so people would say, that's the spirit. And then people will just stare at this, and they'll look at it and say, oh, look at the way they're relating to each other. Notice how the one, two figures on your right are kind of bowing their heads towards the one on the right, uh, on, the, on your left. I'm sorry, I'm like trying to figure out which way is which. Okay, and so there's all these things. They look at it and say, oh, look at how, how peaceful they look. Like they're giving each other space. And so they would just look at these paintings and try to figure out, like, well, can I learn anything more about the way they relate? And that's why these paintings are so valuable. Um, one of my favorite uh, scholars, and he's, he's actually a Catholic priest. Um, his name is Richard Rohr. He has this painting on his wall because this is the thing he wants to look at all day. This is an amazing, uh, amazing uh, painting to, to study if, you, if you're into art. <laughs> but uh, that person I just mentioned, uh, his, his name is Father Richard Rohr. About this painting, this is what he said. He said this. Here we have humanity still feeding God. He's talking about the Abraham story. He have Abraham coming and bringing the dish and he's standing off, right? Here we have humanity still feeding God. It will take a long time to turn that around in, in the human, human imagination. Surely we ourselves are not invited to this divine table, they presume. So the reason why Abraham is not in that painting is because he feels like he's not worthy enough to be a part of that party, right? He's like, my job is to make sure that I bow down to God and that I do everything I can and offer everything I have to God and then I stand in the distance and I get down and I just wait for him to call me. That's, this is what he's saying. At this point in the story, humanity doesn't understand what God really wants from God. Like, when we think about God and I ask you, what, do, what does God want from you? you would probably answer like Abraham, which is, I just want to make sure I give him everything I have, any valuables I have to show him how much I love him, and then I stand back and I just bow down. That's what you think that God wants. But I want you to look at this again. Next slide. Now, if you look at this, and if you go down, the character who is the spirit that's on your right, he's kind of pointing his finger towards the bottom of the table. Do you see that? He's kind of sitting there. And if you look carefully, there's an open spot at the table. Now, the artist here is depicting this really interesting thought here. He's saying, yes, the Trinity is perfect, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but there's always an open spot right there, and who's supposed to sit there? Now, do you also see that little square, that rectangle at the middle of your screen, towards the bottom of the screen? Do you guys see that? Art historians, as they're restoring this, they discovered that, that in that rectangle, there's some glue there, they're like, something used to be pasted here. What, is, what was it there? And so these art historians would get together, they would debate about it, they'd talk about it, and they came to a conclusion. And the conclusion is this, that in that rectangle, at one point in history, was a mirror. And if it was a mirror, then that was, that's never been done before and probably never has been done since on such an art like this. There's two reasons for a mirror. Number one, when you look at the beautiful trinity and how they're interacting with each other, and you realize that when you look at this painting, you see your reflection right in front of you, you realize, oh my gosh, I was creating the image of that. I'm meant to have peaceful relationships with the people around me. I'm supposed to look like this. I'm supposed to be a reflection of that. That's, that's the first one. But the second one's more important because there's an open spot at the table and the Holy Spirit is inviting you to sit there and you're wondering, well, who's going to sit there? And right there in front of you is your face. So Richard Rohr, he continues, Father Richard Rohr says this, God is the Holy One presenced in the dynamic and loving action of the three. But even this three fullness does not like to eat alone. 
This invitation to share at the divine table is probably the first biblical hint of what we would eventually call salvation. Okay, if you don't understand that, let me kind of use regular words because I don't like big, smart words. Okay, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if you are in a perfect relationship, right, that like, if you have a perfect marriage, or, you know, if there's such a thing, right, but anything close to it, let's just say you have a group of friends that you really get along with, that relationship is so good and so joyful that you have to invite people into it. So what he's saying here is the Trinity is such a perfect relationship that it's always inviting people to join in on the fun. God isn't a God who creates a perfect relationship and says, this is our close glute group, so go ahead and create your own happy group over there. The Trinity is so perfect that it's always inviting others to join in on the fun and the joy and the fullness and the satisfaction Right? So he says, this three fullness is actually not full because this, out of the fullness erupts this, this overflow of love that says, why don't you join in on this, in, this, in this relationship? We want you to experience what we're experiencing. Whew. The perfect relationship always invites others to share that joy. And that's what this painter was trying to depict to all of us. He's like, do you understand the Trinity? The deeper you dive into this idea of a trinity, the more you realize that God wants to have a relationship with you. And Richard Rohr says, and perhaps that might have been the first sign of salvation, that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, we are all invited to be in relationship with God. God has so much love that's overflowing from this trinity he says, and we have plenty of love to share with everybody else. You want to join in? That's what he's saying there. Now, I want you to take a look at this again, this painting. Now, imagine this right in front of you. You're at the gallery. You're watching, looking at this painting, right? And you see your reflection. Right now, they don't have a mirror there. But just imagine, you see your reflection there, and the Holy Spirit is pointing to that open spot right there and saying, join in, join in. Now, the question is this. Do you feel welcome at this table? Like, honestly speaking, do you feel like, oh yeah, I totally want to sit with these guys. But maybe, just maybe, you're in a position right now where you're like, if God knew where I've been, how damaged I am, maybe I don't belong at this table. Maybe you're like, I don't belong here, but I have an ideal candidate for who belongs at this table. We all have that spiritual giant, like, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, it must be the Pope, and the Pope belongs there, you know? Or, you know, or you're like, oh, you know, um, Pastor Stan probably belongs there, but not me, <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know who belongs here, but it's definitely not me. And in our minds, we have this idea of this perfect, this higher-level spiritual human being that you know would belong at that table, like, I could imagine, in my, like, if, if you have a dream about this tonight, okay, you're like, you go to the table and you see all of the people. You probably won't see me there because I'm not, you know, but you might see, like, Pastor Tim there. You're like, oh, look at him. Like, I know he belongs there, but definitely not me. But here's the thing. Here's the really interesting thing about this image, okay, because um, we tend to put our spiritual heroes in that open spot right there. And you don't feel like you belong at that spot. But here's a quote by somebody. I love this quote. It says, The Trinity reveals a pattern of perfect freedom in relationship where, whereby each person allows the other to be themselves and yet remain in perfect givenness 
towards the other and not withholding the otherness. Now, if you don't understand what that means, let me simplify it for you. He says, if you look at that painting of the Trinity, or if you just, you haven't seen that painting, but you just study the Trinity on your own time, what you'll discover is this, that these three characters of the Trinity have distinct roles. For example, the Holy Spirit's role is to help you grow. It's to give you spiritual gifts. It's supposed to give you this power to love others, right? And it also, the Holy Spirit's job, his job is to point everybody to Jesus. Now, here's Jesus. Jesus' role is to die for your sins, to rise from the grave, the resurrection, all that great stuff, right? But his also role is also to point everybody to the Father. So you're the Father. What's the Father's role? The Father seems like, according to what Jesus says, Father knows things that the Son doesn't know. It's like, oh, that, only my Father knows. Even I don't know the answer to that, right? And so it seems like every single character has their distinct role. They're all different. And if you look at that painting, you don't sense this competition. You don't feel like, I got to be more like the Father. Or you don't see, like, the Spirit saying, I got to be more like the Son. You don't see any of that. When you're at the table of the Trinity, they allow each other to be who they're meant to be and play the roles that they're meant to play. Do you get that? And you're not intimidated. You know, you know when you, like, hang out with people who are, like, more moral than you or whatever? You feel like, I got to be my best behavior? What he's saying here is, when you're sitting at the table at the Trinity— no, no member of the Trinity, they're distinct, they're different from each other, but they're together, right? They don't look at each other thinking, I need to be more like you. They give them the freedom, the full freedom, the perfect freedom to be as you are. And if that Trinity is inviting you to be a part of that community, then in other words, what, what that's saying is, we don't want anybody to come to this table except you, you got to be you because we want you to be at this table, not you trying to be somebody else or pretending to be somebody else or trying to act like you're moral than who you really are. We want you to come to the table. In other words, you are precisely the gift that God wants. So you don't have to pretend like you're some holy dude or holy gal. Or you, don't, right? you don't have to pretend like your relationships are perfect at home. God says, just as you are, come and join us at the table. Because a perfect relationship always invites the other to come just as they are. Why? Because God is good. God is good. In the beginning was the Trinity, this perfect relationship. And that perfect relationship, when we look at it, we say, wow, and I'm invited into it. And not, are you, not only are you invited into it to participate and be a part of this amazing relationship, you find your salvation through it too. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Trinity. You know, this is such a big topic that we're, we're divvying up the whole message like every pastor is going to be speaking on this because it's so important. Have you considered the Trinity? Have you looked to the Trinity to see what example we're supposed to be following? I hope that we do, and I hope that you guys come for the next few weeks because this is going to be a very deep series when we talk about the importance of relationship and how we need to look at, to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together to see how we ought to behave in our relationships. Amen? All right, let me pray for all of us.